We're in Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders shall be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together in the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Thanks, Emily. All right, well, good morning, everybody. You may be seated. So, this morning, uh, I, before we get into everything, I just want to say two things. First, that uh, the, uh, if you haven't already, today's a great day to sign up for our Enriched Marriage Small Groups. Uh, I just want to echo what Ashley said, because the, the amount of announcements she did, was a, that was a Herculean effort. Uh, so, I'm just going to try to piggyback on it and help out a little. Um, uh, you can feel free to do that. We really do. Uh, we've been working hard on this, and we think it's going to be a great thing. So that's number one. And number two, next week is the fullest week ever uh, for us, or at least one of the more full, week, uh, full weeks or full Sundays, uh, where we'll have church, uh, we'll have a business meeting, and then we'll have small groups at night. So uh, everyone who's in this room, in with everyone who hears the sound of my voice or sees me, uh, you're invited to our business meeting, all right? We will have sign-ins for those of you who are members because it's just good to have a roster report, but um, we won't have any actionable business, and so uh, everyone is invited just kind of to hear about the state of the church, and I have a, I've prepared a short message for that that I think is going to be really good and really meaningful and, and uh, could uh, just to share some things about what I feel like uh, 2018 has in store for our community. All right? All right. Good. Well, this morning, I wanted to start off by reading something to you. Is that all right? I'm going to read everybody a story. I even have a stool to sit on because that felt appropriate. So this is the story of uh, a brief story of uh, the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Does anybody know who Bonhoeffer is? Does that name sound familiar to you? He's a German theologian, uh, uh, came to prominence uh, around World War II, and this is his story. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer was 15 years old, he told his family that uh, he had decided to go to the university and study theology. His older brother said, don't you know that the church is corrupt and out of touch with the world today? Dietrich replied, if that's the case, I'll help reform the church. By the time he was 21 years old, he had completed his doctoral dissertation. By the time he was 24, he had been appointed lecturer in theology at the University of Berlin, and by the age of 27, he had written two books. So, Daniel, you have like two years to write two books. Um, uh, but Germany was suffering from the Great Depression in 1929 to 1939, mass unemployment and civil unrest. It had only recently turned from the monarchy to a democratic government, and in 1933, Germans rejected their democratic government and handed the reins of power over to... Adolf Hitler, 
who was named chancellor on January 30th. Hitler had promised to get the economy moving again. He had also enticed Christians to vote for him by promising to make Christianity the basis of our whole morality. He assured Christians that they were the most important factor safeguarding our national heritage. He blamed Jews and communists for Germany's problems. Jewish stores were boycotted on April 1st, and Germans were warned against fraternizing with Jews. Germans who dated or married Jews were charged with polluting the purity of the German race. The first concentration camp was opened at Dachau in 1933. Hitler decre de uh, decreed the Aryan Clause calling for racial purity of the civil service and eventually of the church. No Christian of Jewish descent would be permitted to hold a position in the church. The sad truth is that most Christians supported Hitler's anti-Semitic and discriminatory policies. Didn't Hitler speak about the need for Christian morality and about divine providence guiding Germany's history? Didn't Germany need a strong ruler who would get the economy moving again and defeat Germany's enemies? Christians were flattered by Hitler's claim to support Christianity, and they lacked the biblical commitment to standards of justice that would have warned them against his unjust plans. Bonhoeffer was one of the very few Christian leaders to see from the start that Hitler was too authoritarian, too dictatorial, too unjust, and too warlike. After Hitler's election, Bonhoeffer preached that Christians have only one Lord, Jesus Christ, and not, and not some other Lord, a secular authority. He gave, radio talk, he gave a radio talk warning against the dangers of a leader who claimed absolute authority and, and trampled on basic human rights. Ominously, his talk was cut off before the climax, apparently by Hitler's censors. How was Bonhoeffer able to see clearly where others were so wrong? How was he, held, uh, how was he able to act courageously when others were so silent? He had not always seen so clearly. In 1929, when he had finished his graduate studies, he had based his concrete ethics on nationalism. Like other Lutheran theologians who ended up supporting Hitler, he, came, he claimed that God had ordained the nation-state to guide us in politics, uh, war, and economics. In other social responsibilities, uh, we should not follow Jesus, but the realities of the German politic. Bonhoeffer's big turn, turning point came the next year while he was studying at Union Theological Seminary in New York and involving himself in an African-American Baptist church in Harlem. He was converted by Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It changed his life, and he even wrote about it to, in a letter to his girlfriend at the time. Eventually, Bonhoeffer became the lone faculty member in an underground theological seminary free from Nazi domination, and there his teaching emphasized the Sermon on the Mount and following Jesus. He wrote his classic on the Sermon on the Mount, The Cost of Discipleship, whose original Greek title was Following Christ, on the basis of the Sermon on the Mount. He sought to persuade others to oppose what Hitler was doing. Taking the Sermon on the Mount seriously meant love for the brother and love for enemy, and it meant love must include all people, and that certainly included Jews. That meant Christians must oppose Hitler's anti-Jewish policies. Taking the Sermon on the Mount seriously also meant uh, taking Jesus' teachings on peacemaking seriously. That meant he now had a strong grounds for opposing Hitler's bellicose policies. 
He said that a clear and uncompromising stand based on the Sermon on the Mount was the only source of power strong enough to make Christianity a vital force for the people. And he said that a new sense of life as, fo- as, uh, as following Jesus in accord with the Sermon on the Mount would be the only way towards restoration of the church after the Nazi debacle was finally over. Karl Barth, who was one of the leaders of the Confessing Church, who opposed Hitler's takeover of the church, wrote in 1933, only Bonhoeffer, uh, uh, excuse me, from 1933, was that Bonhoeffer was the first, indeed almost the only one, who focused so centrally on energetically and energetically on defending Jews against Hitler's injustices. While the confessing church concentrated on defending the church, it did little to help Jews outside the church who were being deprived of their homes, their businesses, and eventually their lives. It was Bonhoeffer, standing on the basis of the Sermon on the Mount as concrete guidance for life, who spoke out against the Nazi anti-Jewish policies and urged the church to act in opposition. He helped smuggle 14 Jews out of Germany into Switzerland and helped a Jewish professor named Perls Uh, to survive the concentration camp in Gers. It seems clear that Bonhoeffer's loyalty to Jesus Christ and his concrete understanding of Jesus' way as revealed on the Sermon on the Mount were major reasons why he was able to see so clearly what was wrong with Hitler. In his resistance of Hitler's injustice, the Sermon on the Mount was central. You know... The Sermon on the Mount matters. It matters. What we, th- what we say, uh, we think we believe about the Bible matters. Very often in our time, people want to relegate the scriptures to kind of an antiquated, far off, unimportant thing. We want to say that the book is in some way dead, or at the very least, it no longer applies to me any longer. But what I know for sure and the reason I read you that little story was because the things you, com- you come to believe about the scriptures and about the teachings of Jesus are completely and utterly revolutionary, or at least they should be. Too often we believe that this book is now tame, that it carries no real weight, that it, that it, that it doesn't actually, when we, when we really encounter it and when we really allow it to encounter us, that it, that it has no bearing on what we do, think, or say. But it does. It does. The scriptures, and particularly the teachings of the Jesus, have over and over and over again throughout history changed things up, stirred them up, turned the world upside down, and they have the power to do that today. They do. Part of the problem, I think, is our kind of American Christianity, and in many ways is a fairly tame version of the Christianity that we see in the scriptures It really is. It's about everything being in its right place and everybody being happy or feeling good about themselves. But the and the revolutionary edge of what it is that Jesus is saying is kind of taken off. It really is. Because it just becomes self-help. But the truth of the matter is, is that when we're captured by this message, when we are when our hearts are enlivened by it, when we really see it for what it is, when we allow the Holy Spirit to penetrate into the deepest part of us and plant the seeds of the kingdom in that place, nothing stays the same. Nothing. And when we see things like 
the type of injustice that Bonhoeffer describes in this place. We can stand firmly on, on the footing of the Sermon on the Mount, and we can act for the kingdom and for the world. Does this make sense? When we lose sight of the teachings of Jesus, or when we allow the teachings of, the Jesus, of Jesus to just become something that is just supposed to make us feel good, we, we lose the revolutionary edge. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are never to lose that edge, ever, ever. And so today we're jumping into a, a passage of the Sermon on the Mount that is, I think, particularly revolutionary. Not because the thing it asks us to do is all that hard, technically, but because it is something that we don't do. Not just us, but people in society just don't do. We don't do these things because ah, that's just not the way the world works. But in reality, the church is called to do what Jesus says so that we, can, we are invited to participate in a free-hearted way, like we said last week, in the kingdom of God. And so this week we'll be talking about the passage that Emily read, Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. Just a brief uh, excursion here. Uh, next week, I won't be speaking. We'll have Ashley speak. And then the week following that, my father-in-law, Tom Jacobs, who happens to be the superintendent of the, the Iowa Ministry Network, will be speaking. Uh, so Ashley still doesn't believe that I gave the pulpit up for two weeks in a row, but it happened. Uh, and, then, uh, the, and then the following, uh, the following Sunday on February 25th, I'll be picking up uh, this same passage again and carrying it through to the end. But this week, what we're going to look at is the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, 21. And I hope to show you that there's a way of reading this passage that maybe you've never seen before that might be a little bit new to you, that you might, when you, when you first open the scriptures and you look at it this way, might not be something that you see immediately. But it is, I think, a kind of key to understanding what it is that God has for us in this passage of Scripture and throughout the rest of chapter 5 and a, a big chunk of chapter 6 as well. And this week, Jesus is continuing, and this week, he's continuing some of the ideas that he spoke about last week. Jesus, last week we learned, Jesus was really starting to get directly to the heart of the Old Testament law, about what the law is, how it functions, what, what purpose it serves, and, th and this week, we, we hear Jesus say at the very beginning, you have heard it said long ago, right? Some other uh, translations might say, uh, Jesus says, the ancients were told, if you have a different translation in front of you. Now, remember here that Jesus is speaking to Jewish people. So he is referring here to the, the, to the traditional teachings of the Old Testament, right? When he says the ancients were told, your ancestors were told, those long ago, what he's talking about is the Jewish people long ago. And like we said last week, Jesus is now reinterpreting those passages that he's referring to, but he is reinterpreting them for the benefit of the people who are listening to him. He is not simply adding extern more external rules on top of this old law that he's referring to, but he is rather reinterpreting that in the light of, uh, uh, in the light of his coming and in the light of the kingdom of God. These, you have heard it said, but I tell you passages are all about 
Jesus wanting the truth of God's kingdom to kind of cut through the religiosity that was his audience were carrying and kind of be directed directly at the heart of his hearers and directly at our hearts. So for us to not understand these truths is uh, as anything other than, than truths about the heart of God is a little bit of a misunderstanding. We are called to not see these teachings of Jesus as abstract rules, but rather as uh, glimpses into the character of God. You, uh, and primarily in this passage, I think Jesus reveals to us two things, two things. And the, the first thing that he reveals in this passage is he reveals to his audience about the Father's heart. That is, he's going to show how God the Father really feels about things and why the Old Testament law was a reflection, a representation of what God wanted. But now, in the person of Jesus, we see the Father, Father's heart truly and accurately revealed. This is what Jesus is doing. And the second thing he is doing is that he's about to reveal how people can participate with the kingdom of, of God from their hearts. From their hearts. Last week we said that what Jesus wants out of the Sermon on the Mount is free-hearted participation with the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going to continue that theme right on down through this section of Scripture as well. Because Jesus has made it clear that participation in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with external rules of religious conformity, but with the heart. But with a heart that is coming into line with the kingdom of God and overflows into our daily action, the, the daily actions of our lives. This is a both powerful and revealing set of scriptures that we're about to get into at the tail end of chapter 5. And this is not simply a kind of decree about how we should act. This isn't just, this isn't just adding one more thing, right? You shouldn't be angry, Jesus says. It's not just adding don't be angry to a whole set of lists of other things that we're not supposed to do. Jesus rather gives us fresh revelation about the heart of God here. He gives us new insight into what, God actu what God's heart is actually like and then invites us to participate in that as well. That's what's happening here. So today, we're going to spend uh, almost all of the rest of our time specifically on this text so if you have a Bible, I would suggest you get a physical Bible because you won't be able to scroll through everything you'll need to see. There's a, there are Bibles in front of you if you want to follow along with us. But I think I'm going to show you, I hope to show you something in this passage that is uh, really unique about the way I think we need to read all of these, you have heard it said, but I say passages. Jesus does this, he, he teaches in a pattern here, and I think if we don't see the pattern, we lose sight of what he's actually teaching. So that's why I think it's good for you to have a Bible open. All right? All right. So in verse 21, this is what Jesus says. I'll read it again. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So on the surface, when we read this passage, it says, don't murder people, right? Which I hope is a standard you all hold to in your daily lives, right? You try, you try as hard as you can not to murder anyone on a daily basis. Murder is bad, just for the record, okay, in case anybody was on the fence about murder. Uh, and this was understood well by Jesus' audience, all right? 
In fact, this was one of the primary laws. It was one of the big ten that Moses brought down from the mountain in Exodus 20. And in Exodus 20, I think we have the whole verse up there that you shall not murder. That's the whole thing. There's no explanation, right? There's no lead up. Uh, it was pretty clear and straightforward teaching, right? You can't kill people. That's not a good thing to do. And so, in the Hebrew mind, murder was a serious sin, something that, was grie- that grieved the heart of God, right? We know this to be true. But remember that Jesus is, is not just making laws here. He's not adding, don't be angry to don't murder, all right? This isn't what he's doing. He's teaching about the heart of the Father and about, the, and about what life in, lived in the kingdom of God should look like. This is what he's teaching. And so do not murder is not good enough anymore because that was never God's standard. Because let's be honest, if not murdering is your standard, if is your highest standard of moral achievement, then we're all fine, right? Most, I don't know, uh, you know, who knows, but... Uh, <laughs> Most of us are fine. Well, sir, you've cheated on your taxes and you verbally and emotionally abuse your wife. You hate everyone you've ever met. Really, your life is just abject misery, but at least you've never murdered anyone. You've maimed a few people, but you've never murdered anyone, so you're good, right? This is, this, if this was the standard, this, doesn't, this, this shouldn't be the standard, And this is not the heart of God. And this is not what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. Because Jesus wants to go delve into this, what what stood behind this commandment. What what was the emotion or the the feeling or the thing that stood behind this commandment that made uh, murder the cap, right? So in verse 22, he continues, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is not just saying, don't murder. He is saying that the same impulse that leads us to murder can also express itself in our hearts as anger. As anger. So uh, one author says it this way. It is a diagnosis, what Jesus is doing here, is a diagnosis of a vicious cycle that we often get stuck in, being angry, insulting one another. It is simply realistic. Uh, we, we do get angry. We do insult one another. And it does lead to trouble. Now, not all anger is necessarily bad. But there is an anger that devalues, right? That devalues other people. And then there is a type of anger that is anger at injustice, and that is not necessarily a bad type of anger. Every time you say that idiot or stupid people, anytime you have an anger that carries you to the place of devaluing someone else or someone uh, or devaluing yourself even, is is the type of anger that Jesus is talking about here. Because there is also an anger that comes about when we see injustice, right? Someone does something that affects uh, either themselves or other people in a negative way, and we get angry when we see educational or medical systems that are letting people down. Right? We get angry not because of they're not because we want to devalue those people, but precisely because we value them. Right? There's a type of anger that comes about that is not bad. This is the type of anger that Jesus has near the end of his ministry when he cleanses the temple. 
Is anybody familiar with that story, Jesus' cleansing of the temple? He was angry because of the way that the economic system at the temple was keeping the poor from worshiping and keeping Gentiles out. And so he chases the money changers out, and he reestablishes the temple court as a place where all are, are equally able to come and worship God. This is what Jesus was doing. It was more like a righteous indignation than anything, right? But when Jesus says anger here, what he is talking about, and I think uh, the ang- it's a type of anger that we're all familiar with, actually. And this is the anger that devalues. It starts out really simple, I think. It starts out when you experience some pain or some hurt or some slight at the hands of another person, and you brood on that, you think about it, you turn it over and over in your mind. Maybe it's just the demeaning statement made in your heart towards someone you feel superior to, that idiot. But you know something, it's this type of anger that compounds, it grows. It grows into a vicious cycle in our hearts, actually, and begins to take up root there and control us. And this is what Jesus is uncovering here. Do you see the progression in what he, has been, what he says? It's a vicious cycle of anger that every one of us struggle with. The more we dwell on it, the more it grows. And the more it grows, the less in control we are. Anger becomes this thing, if we, if we, if we dwell on it and we let it persist, that we are no longer in control of. It controls us. And when we run that script over and over in our heads until the next time we see that person and we are just, what's the expression? Spitting mad, right? We're spitting mad, which is a funny expression because Jesus uses the first century term for spitting mad. This word that is kind of funny, it's, it's raka. This is an Aramaic word and it was actually an onomatopoeia. It was a word that people said, it, it, it meant uh, disgust at someone, but the reason the word is that way, the reason it is onomatopoeia is that's what the sound they thought you made when you spit on someone, racha. Does it make sense? It's a spitting term. To spit on someone, even in our day, is the, is the most visceral, right? And one of the most degrading things that one human can do to another person, isn't it? And it is, it is the, the quintessential action of someone who truly devalues another person. Does this make sense? Is so angry that that person is no longer valued, and so I spit on them, right? And once you get to that place where you can spit on someone, and anger has so controlled your heart to the point where you completely dis- devalue a person to that extent that they're not even human, murder becomes a distinct possibility right? If you devalue another person to that place. And so murder was the cap that God put on it in the Old Testament. But the heart, the root of that issue is anger. And Jesus wants to show us that God's heart is not that, is not that we just don't murder people, but rather that, that, we, um, that we dig up the root of murder and pain and brokenness at the source, which is anger. This is what Jesus longs to do you know, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard called, uh, had, had a word for this thing, when anger so fully takes up residence in a person that it controls everything they do and are. He called it demonic rage. Demonic rage. 
when you're just no longer in control anymore and anger becomes the thing that, uh, that kind of guides your life, your path. And in our day, anger is a real issue. It's a real issue. Just look at our politics. Just look at, just look at the news cycle. What, 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 what powers our news cycle? It's outrage, right? It's outrage after outrage after outrage after outrage that keeps us just kind of constantly a little angry at everything we see on the news, right? This is something we run into all of the time. And as we continually devalue people, right, it's no wonder that we no longer see them as people who are desperately loved by God, but rather as representations of the things we don't like. Just for the record, this is the exact same thing, and this is the root cause of racism, right? If you believe someone is not valuable or that they, they in and of themselves have some inherent um, flaw that should keep them down or wrong, this is the same thing that causes racism in our world, isn't it? It's the script that runs over and over in your head that some type of person is not valuable, that they're not good as you, that they're, they're not as deserving of God's love. It's the same feeling. It's the same impulse. And as we run it over and over in our heads, it can take control. Anger is a real thing. It's a real problem. And Jesus pr uh, proposes a solution to this problem in this passage. He, he wants to deal directly with it, and it's not going to anger management. Everybody needs to go to counseling, which if you have an anger issue, I think is probably a good thing to do, but this isn't what Jesus is saying. Rather than just put a quick fix, what Jesus invites us into to deal with this anger issue that we all deal with, the, an anger issue that everyone in the world deals with and the world is grappling with, is what, what he does is he invites us into the kingdom of God, right? He invites us to participate with the kingdom of God by taking on some practices that transform our lives, some concrete practices, some things that we actually need to do in order to root out the anger that lives within each and every one of us. This is what he says in verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, are the, and there uh, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So this is a trans what I call a transforming practice that Jesus is introducing here to help us transform our hearts, because Jesus knows something, and I've said this before. If we don't actually have concrete actions to carry out with the help of the Holy Spirit, we won't transform our hearts. If you let yourself just default all the time to whatever comes into your mind and your heart, guess what? It's going to go in a poor direction. But if you, in, 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 in line with the teachings of Jesus and in cooperation with the Spirit of God, take on some, some concrete practices, you do some actual things to change your heart, your heart will then change. And this is what Jesus is inviting us into. I think we have a slide up here that kind of breaks it down for us. This is what this passage looks like. And, and just as, a, as an interpretive key for the rest of chapter 5 and all of the you have heard it said, but I say, they all have this exact same pattern. They all have this exact same pattern. So first we see traditional righteousness, right? Jesus says, you have heard it said. Don't be, 
do not murder, right? And then in the next passage, Jesus then uncovers the vicious cycle that underlies that traditional saying, right? Uh, But here's the vicious cycle. But uh, I tell you, do not be angry with your brother or sister. Does that make sense? And then he goes on to say, okay, now now that we've identified the vicious cycle, now that we've identified the real root cause, how do we deal with it? We deal with it by carrying out these transforming actions, these things that change literally our hearts in, in, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is introducing us to today. And, and the cure that Jesus gives us for the anger that resides in all of our hearts, the cure that he gives us, and it sounds really simple, but in practice it turns out to be quite hard, is to actively seek reconciliation. The cure for anger is actively seeking reconciliation. This is why Christians are people who should always be the first ones to say, I'm sorry, in any argument. Right? Okay, thanks. Um, Daniel, thank you. So here's another quote. So this is not a high ideal to be admired from a distance, but an actual practice It is not an impossible teaching, but it is, in fact, practiced regularly by many of us. It solves problems. It is the way of deliverance from vicious cycles of anger and insult. Uh, Nor is it legalism. It is the way of grace, the way God takes towards us in Christ, and the way we can participate in God's grace, uh, grace mediated through the community. Can I just say that as a follower of Jesus, if we live with this understanding that there is anger and animosity between us and between other people, and we allow that anger to take up root, and then we don't do the work of reconciliation, we don't, uh, we don't uh, lean into the cure for our own anger, what we'll end up being is just angry like every other person, right? We won't actually lean into this idea of reconciliation, And this was shown to me most clearly from a friend when I was in seminary. Uh, uh, Many of you are in classroom settings because you're college students, and most of you have been in a classroom setting in some type. And uh, when I was in seminary, we were in a lot of, there was a lot of discussion in class. And what could happen very often is people would dominate that conversation. There's always those one or two people in class who dominate conversation. And very often, they're the the last people who should be talking. right? We know this. It's the people who are always want to talk who's like, that person should be quiet, right? Well, I had a guy like this in my class, and his name was Howie. And Howie would dominate conversation all the time. And Howie drove me crazy. And I would walk out of class, and I would grab my friend Steve, and I would just complain about Howie after every single class. I would just complain about him. Man, Howie just train wrecked our conversation again, that I wanted to say something constructive when we were on a nice path. It's always, me getting, it's always about me getting my words in, by the way. Um, uh, and he, how he ruined it. And Steve would just kind of listen, yeah. And so one day I walk out of class, and Steve has Howie in the corner, and he's saying to Howie, Howie, you know sometimes how, when you control conversation in class, you really train wreck the whole thing. So what I would really like for you to do, he's just talking to Howie about the fact that Howie controls conversation and that he's really ruining the classroom experience for everybody else. And I, I got so scared because I was like, oh, please don't tell me Nick told, Nick, Nick told me that you're bad in class. Um, but my friend Steve showed me something there. That's how Christians handle these situations. 
rather than letting the root of anger take up take up a place in my heart and just control my thinking and make me devalue Howie, we address it. We talk about it. Not surprisingly, my friend Steve was a recovering alcoholic and spent a lot of time in AA telling the truth about things. And so he was going to be a person who was going to tell the truth no matter what, right? He wasn't going to let the root of anger take up a space in his heart. Otherwise, he might be drinking again. And so uh, he had to tell the truth all the time, right? He had to be active in this process of reconciliation, and that is what Jesus is talking about here, that we are called, if the band could come up, we are called to be agents of reconciliation and peace in the world, not just for the world, for the world, yes, but also for our own hearts. You know, we all have that broken relationship in our life, right? We all have that person with whom we cannot be in the same room. We all have that, that relationship in our family or with our friend or former friend that we just don't really want to deal with. We just let it stay out there and fester because, because we, it's just too much, right? It's just too hard. I don't want to go and reconcile. I don't want to be an agent of reconciliation. I don't want to root out the anger in my own heart. I just want to live with it. I just want to dwell on it. This is why Kierkegaard called it demonic rage, because it's, it's painful for you, right? It's, it's troubling, but you want it, right? You, still, you would rather there be discord. You would rather there be distance. You would rather there be pain than bring reconciliation in, because the pain makes you feel righteous, right? And the reconciliation makes you admit your own fault, makes you admit your own wrong. You know, very often in our lives, we just choose not to be agents of reconciliation. We choose not to be them just because it's difficult. Preparing this message, there are two relationships in my life that right now are not in a, are not in a reconciled place. And what that breeds for me is anger towards them. So when I see that person, I just go, oh gosh, rather than being free-hearted and being able to ascribe love and being able to live fully into this kingdom of God that Jesus unfolds on the Sermon on the Mount. This is revolutionary stuff. What if, to the best of your ability, wherever you went for the rest of your life, you were about the business of reconciling with people? You were about the business of rooting out the anger in your own heart and life, and now you can't control other people all the time, right? You can't always control the way they respond back to you. But you can control your own heart, right? And you can control the feelings that reside within them. And you can make the best effort possible to root that out in your own life. And chances are, chances are, that there will be more peace and there will be more reconciliation in your immediate vicinity than was prior because you, guided by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, want to go and make reconciliation, want to be an agent of God's renewal, his reconciliation, and his peace. This is what Jesus says. It's a concrete action, and it's something we can all do. It's something we can all do, and it's something we all must do. This is why in communities where, where Jesus and where the, where the Holy Spirit really has reigned, this is why in those types of communities, offense is always happening. Offense is always happening, but people are always going to other people 
They're asking for forgiveness. They're confessing their sin within the context of a relationship. And they're finding, with the help of the Holy Spirit, a place of reconciliation and hope. This is what the church is. This is what the kingdom of God is. You know, what's funny about this is this is uh, the, the example Jesus uses of the time when you're supposed to uh, uh, find reconciliation with your brother or sister is during a worship service, right? He says, if you're offering your, if you're, if you're at the altar and you're bringing an offering and you know that there's, there's some discord between you and somebody else, it's more important that you go and you, uh, you clear up that horizontal relationship before you even do the vertical you and God thing. And some of us in this place, I've experienced it in my own life at times, might have a block with your horizontal relationship with Jesus because all of your uh, vertical relationship with Jesus because all of your horizontal relationships are a mess. This might be the case. And what, what Jesus might have you to do today, whether it's with somebody in this room or somebody not in this room, is go and clear that up first to put your offering down and go clear that thing up so that you could be rightly reconciled to God, right? This is what Jesus says. And the funny thing is that Paul, again, says this very thing in, in 1 Corinthians 11, right before, surprise, surprise, the church is about to worship by receiving communion, something we're about to do here today. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 17, right before his, commun right before his uh, liturgy about communion. He says this, uh, beginning in verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Right? And then he goes on to talk about communion. Paul is probably calling directly back to this teaching of Jesus here. And when he says later on in this same passage that some, some people are taking improperly, receiving communion improperly, he doesn't just mean that they have sin in their own hearts and then they're going to receive communion. What he means is their discord in the community. And when you receive this symbol of oneness in Christ together, but yet there, are, there is discord in the community, there's a bit of a lie that's happening there, right? And Paul wants to make clear to this church that was experiencing and, and, the, and the Corinthian church was experiencing some very heavy stuff. But he wants, it to make, he wants to make it clear to the church that in the receiving of community, what we are proclaiming, what we are stepping into is the kingdom of God, right? We are, we are pronouncing the, the unity of the body of Christ and our participation in the kingdom of God. And if there is strife, if there is discord amongst us, that needs to be cleaned up. It just does. It just does. And so this morning, I thought it would be fitting to receive communion together, right? Because it's a beautiful sign of what God wants for us. Because one of the primary signs, one of the primary symbols that, uh, that Jesus is reigning and ruling in a community of people is that they are actively seeking re reconciliation with one another. You know, no community is perfect. No group of people is perfect. No family is perfect. We, were, we will all get sideways with one another at one time or another. It's just gonna happen. It's just gonna happen. But if you're committed to the teachings of Jesus, you're also committed to the process of reconciliation. 
and you're committed to living in a free-hearted way. You're invited to participate in a free-hearted way into the kingdom of God. And that is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. I should have put my thing here. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, uh, or sorry, uh, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you dr as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At Grace Community Church, we practice an open communion, which means that you don't need to be a member of our church in order to receive with us. All we ask if you receive communion is that you follow Jesus with your life. As we uh, get up to receive communion, we'll, we'll, we'll each get up and receive communion at the tables. You can either take the elements back to your seat or you can receive at the table. Um, you can receive whenever you would want. You don't need to hold the elements um, because we won't be receiving at, at once. This morning, I invite you during this communion time to search your heart, to search your heart, to see if there's any anger that resides in you, to see if there's any reconciliation that needs to take place in your life and in any relationship within the context of your life. Maybe you're really mad at me and we need to talk about it. That's good too. That would be good too. The reality is, the reality is, People in the kingdom are invited to participate with God in the rhythms of grace that are open to us because of Jesus. And just for the record, this is exactly what Jesus did, right? He came to us from God and made peace. He's our great reconciler, right? This is what Jesus, this is who he is. And so this morning, as we, as we receive these elements, would you open your heart to the Holy Spirit? Would you help him speak? Would you allow him to speak to you? And would you allow him to change your heart, to root out that, that, uh, that bitterness, that anger that resides in you? And would you help him to give you the courage to go to that person and to the best of your ability, reconcile, reconcile? So we are one people, and we meet at this communion table this morning to reaffirm and remind ourselves again that we stand under Jesus Christ, our crucified Lord, together. All right, the table is open.